0: Right, right, we've come to chapter 2 in the book of Lamentations. I'm going to read um, not the entire chapter, but go uh, read through verse 17, which is most of it anyway. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast down from heaven to earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. With his right hand, like an adversary, he has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle, as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. How can I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He is thrown down and has not pitied, and he has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. So we'll stop there. So Lamentations chapter 2, as you no doubt notice from the reading, emphasizes uh, the Lord as the agent in the suffering of the people. Chapter 1, we saw the extent of the suffering. It was... Total devastation. And now, here especially in this chapter, the emphasis is on the fact that it's, this is the Lord's work. The Lord has done this. And you may notice that even in the opening verses, uh, verses one, two, three, the, the subject of every clause is the Lord, or He. He has cut off in fierce anger. He has drawn back His hand, and so on. Now, when you see things like that, and this is the introduction, you know, before you say, well, whoa, wait a second, that's uh, that's maybe too hard to take. Uh, we should keep in mind God's covenant relationship with his people. So this is not God dealing with a, a nation that never knew him, but God chastening his covenant people. And the covenant hope is always restoration after that chastening. And we'll see some of that, some hope of that in this chapter, it, uh, is especially, as I've mentioned before, clear in chapter three. But because they had uh, trusted in these covenant privileges, because they had said this temple is the temple of the Lord, it will never be destroyed. And because they disregarded repeated warnings. So I've mentioned Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, but all the way to the time of Jeremiah, who was writing this. Uh, Again and again, God warned them that if they acted this way, his hand would be against them. And uh, so it has come upon them. But it's important to realize this is not some outburst of some tyrant who just, you know, one day decides I'm going to wipe out this city. Um, This is the stated plan of God. And that's one reason I wanted at least to get to verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. And that would go back to those uh, covenant blessings and curses in the Pentateuch and also to all the way through the prophets uh, to the time of Jeremiah. So this is uh, this is God's uh, stated purpose. This is what God said he would do. And again, that's the hope, right? If this is some arbitrary tyrant who one day decides, I'm getting rid of Jerusalem, then what, what hope is there? But with that covenant promise was also the hope of restoration. And that's why that chapter closes with Jeremiah exhorting them to call on God and then with uh, Jerusalem, uh, Lady Zion uh, calling out to them uh, because of that hope. So I want to set that out up front because the opening verses are pretty tough to take. This is the Lord doing all of the awful things that we read about, if you like, in chapter 1. And of course, that was also mentioned in chapter 1, but it's up front here. Let me make a couple of other comments just about the uh, chapter as a whole in terms of its structure. Um, so the chapter is an acrostic, just like chapter one. So there's a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet for the first uh, first word of each of the verses. Uh, so going all the way through the alphabet that way. Uh, in terms of who's uh, speaking, uh, the narrator, so you can think of the prophet Jeremiah, but taking on the one who has observed the scene, speaks in almost the entire chapter. So that last chapter was split evenly between uh, the narrator and Lady Zion, but here uh, he speaks all the way in verses through verses 1 through 19. It's interesting, there's a shift in the middle. He starts speaking in the first person about his own sorrow, and he actually addresses Lady Zion, which is, maybe breaking the boundaries of what a narrator would normally do, but that's uh, that lends uh, uh, to the dynamic of the chapter. And then the, the last verses, as I mentioned, uh, verses 20 through 22, are the prayer uh, after he exhorts them to pray, the, the people pray to God. Uh, one other note about this is uh, th- this idea of uh, bracketing. Inclusio is the technical word, but the first verse and the last verse both refer to the day of the Lord's anger, you can see that in the verse uh, one of chapter two, he did this in the day of his anger, this idea of the day of the Lord, which you can see in the prophets was in chapter one, but there's only so much you can talk about. So it's especially prominent here in that it it brackets the whole chapter. It's the day of his anger, not not the Babylonians just doing their thing, although we'll come back to that. But it's the day of the Lord's anger. Okay, so that's the uh, introduction. And I want to make uh, a comment here in connection with that, uh, because one of the things that we're about to see is a repeated reference to the Lord acting as an enemy. okay, And that's connected with what we just talked about. God is the one who does this, so God appears as an enemy. And you can see that, uh, for example... In uh, verse four at the beginning, standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. There's a question. Is God our enemy? (laughs) And Matthew Henry in this uh, quotation, I think, uh, really brings out the very helpfully what's going on here. He says, God is not really an enemy to his people. No, not when he is angry with them and corrects them in anger. And he gives an illustration. We may be sorely displeased against our dearest friends and relations, whom yet we are far from having an enmity to. But sometimes he, that is God, is as an enemy to them. When all his providences concerning them seem an outward appearance to have a tendency to their ruin. When everything made against them and nothing for them. That's a very helpful understanding. Again and again, the the chapter says the Lord was as an enemy, but When we're going through trials, and this is a very important thing for us to keep in mind, when we're going through trials or seeing the church going through suffering, God is not actually an enemy. It may, it may seem that way, uh, but God has a good end. God will accomplish his purpose. And I think uh, that reflection of Matthew Henry is really helpful for us as we think about the chapter. Okay, so that was kind of a long introduction. Of course, I can always blame that we started late, so I can go late today. What does it matter? Yeah. Any any thoughts on the introduction, comments so far? Okay, so um, there's the always basic outline. So the introduction uh, for this main section, which is verses uh, 1 uh, through 10, main in the sense it's, it sets out this theme that we talked about. Uh, I gave the title Cast Down from Heaven, which I'll try to explain. Uh, but then... Uh, Verses, uh, I see I didn't put down the verse divisions there, verses uh, 11 through 19 are these uh, tears, comforts, and exhortation that uh, express Jeremiah's concern for the people and their call that they should pray. And then the concluding part is the the prayer uh, of the people. So let's think first about uh, cast down from heaven. And this is Another thing that actually brackets the chapter, both at the beginning and at the next to the last verse of the chapter, we've, we're have we on high on heaven, but we're cast down to earth. We're cast down to the ground. You can see that in verse two also. So, again, this is the Lord's doing. And the, the picture is of God who's in destruction mode. Okay? God is doing all these things. He's destroying the temple. He's He's crushing them. Uh, again and again, uh, God is acting to bring about the destruction that we've read about. But um especially, I think, pointed here is the emphasis that God is doing this without pity. That's another thing that's repeated in these opening verses and actually later in the chapter. He spurns, he abandons, he casts them down. So that's the sense of the people after what they have experienced in the destruction of Jerusalem. And I want to spell this out a little bit more, especially in connection with uh, what was lost and reflecting on the loss of their communion with God. Now, you can see that in various ways. Um, First is... uh, In verse 1, that he cast down from heaven to earth the beauty of Israel. Now, there are various ways in which God beautified the people, but I think in the context it has to do with the next clause, which is his footstool. So you may be familiar with verses uh, referring to uh, Jerusalem as being his footstool or the temple or the ark. Uh, Jesus refers to this in the prayers of the Pharisees, you know. he says, "Don't swear by the footstool because it's it's uh, well by the city of Jerusalem because it's his footstool," and that's I think the sense here. Uh, did not remember his footstool means that God cast down the temple uh, in the destruction, but not only the destruction of the buildings we'll see, uh, but uh, more beyond that. So I put up a couple of other references: uh, Psalm ninety-nine five and uh, Psalm one thirty-two seven, which also refer to uh, the temple or tabernacle or the ark as being a God's footstool. Now, you know, when we think of footstool, we think of something, okay, well, that's, you know, that's just something you use uh, to put your feet on. But here the connection is the footstool is then drawn, as it were, into heaven because God is in heaven and he even takes us up into his presence. And we'll see that develop later on, but I just want to emphasize that, you know, thinking of his footstool is thinking of something that's exalted in the presence of God. This is something that he uh, honors with his presence. Now to spell it out a little bit more, uh, notice in uh, verses uh, 6 and 7 how that is described. He has done violence to to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. Okay, so that's a little bit hard to understand. It's, It's like, you know, in your back property, you've got this old shed garden shed and and there's not very much to it. Um, That's what he's saying. The tabernacle or the booth was like to God. He just goes out there and knocks it down. He just destroys it. And that's the way they see he treated the temple. Uh, But notice, go on in verse six, he has destroyed the place of his place of assembly. This is where they gathered to worship him. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. So you get the sense that all that they had for communion with God is gone. Even the king was the Davidic king who was closely allied to the worship of God. And, of course, the reference to the priesthood then leads you on to the next verse. He spurned his altar, he abandoned his sanctuary, and... uh, we mentioned before this uh, enjambment in verse 7, they have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. Okay, all the people are here, but they're here to destroy the house of the Lord. So that those verses emphasize the cutting off of the system of worship and of their communion with God, which God has done. Um, if you read uh, further on, and I'm, I'm just highlighting this one aspect, there are other ways you can pick this out, but Uh, notice at the end of verse nine, the law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. So they have no connection with the revelation of God anymore. The law would be the revelation of God, which was written down. It was the responsibility of the, the priests and Levites to teach them. But those people are gone and. There was ongoing revelation, uh, but those prophets find no vision from the Lord. God has gone silent. So not only is the means of communion with God taken away, but the revelation that God gave is also taken away. Now, I want to expand on this uh, one point in connection with the prophets finding no vision from the Lord, because. There's uh, more to this than uh, you might expect just from seeing this. Uh, If you keep reading, you may be glad that some of these prophets aren't around anymore, but uh, we'll see what you think when we get there. So look at verse uh, 14. This is in uh, a later section, but it it connects with this idea. Jeremiah says, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity, to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. So interesting fact that a second word, and the, so the second line of verse 14, false and deceptive visions, the word deceptive literally means whitewashed. So they used whitewash back then too. So these were visions that were uh covering over the way things really were, which is that God's judgment was going to come on them. Instead, they whitewashed the word from God so that it was uh, a deceptive thing. And how did they do that? Well, it says in the next line, they have not uncovered your iniquity. If you're familiar with uh, any of the writings of the prophets uh, before this time, uh, you can think of Jeremiah, for example. Uh, Jeremiah quotes the false prophets as saying, peace, peace. And then Jeremiah says, when there is no peace. That's the kind of deceptive vision that they're talking about. And it's a, it's a terrible thing when your supposed revelation from God tells you, everything's going to be fine. Go on in your sin. Uh, we're not going to talk about that. We're, th- we're going to talk about something more pleasant than your iniquity. We refuse to uncover that. Now I wanted to bring this up in particular, because uh, the people were complicit in this. Uh, there's uh, another verse I put up these two references in Jeremiah 6:14 is the peace, peace." But Jeremiah 5:31, "My people love to have it so." in the context it's referring to these false prophecies, and uh, they like it. Right? That's something that they enjoy, having whitewashed messages instead of what Jeremiah told them, for example so I I want to reflect then back on the significance of this what does it mean that they were cast down from heaven what was the significance of this so I said this is uh, a remarkable thing because of the close connection God established between his people and himself so that they could be said to be in heaven and communing with him when they worshipped at his temple his temple was his dwelling place so they had fellowship with him but they, they relied on that, right? That God would never destroy the temple, so we're free to act as we like as long as this temple is here. Uh, they trusted in their privileges. They trusted in the means that were given. And so they refused to hear the word of the true prophets. And that's what's uh, then so disturbing about God. what God does. He says, in effect, if you don't want to hear my word, I'll take it away from you, right? The the law is no more and we find no prophets anymore, no vision from the Lord that the prophets have. And so God in his anger, in a sense, gives them what they wanted, which is they didn't want to hear him speak anymore. He gives them what they wanted in the sense that they were cast out of his presence, cast down from heaven. Now this is a, a very uh, serious warning for our own day. This is a warning to churches against false preaching. You don't build a huge church by by revealing people's iniquities. You'll do better if you cover their iniquities. Uh, You'll be more popular in your ministry. And that can happen in various ways. Uh, It can happen in uh, churches that are otherwise faithful. It's also a warning to us uh, not to take the means of grace for granted. This is what they did, and yet uh, God took it away from them because their living was inconsistent with their profession because they uh, trusted in things that, uh, instead of trusting in the Lord who gave them to him. I think uh, this quotation from I can get this right. Uh, Matthew 11:23 is especially revel- uh, relevant. More than one commentator brought this out. Uh, Matthew 11:23, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, who are, are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. So Capernaum had seen the mighty works of Christ even. And yet they had not believed. And John Trapp in his commentary says this: "Those that with Capernaum are lifted up to heaven in the abundance of means, may be brought down to hell for an instance of divine vengeance." It's especially a warning for us in the New Testament church. We, Hebrews twelve: We have, when we assemble, we assemble in the presence of God. We are in heaven, uh, as it were. So the question is: Do we do we take? seriously what it is that we've been given? And do we uh, treasure it? So especially on this Lord's Day, do we treasure having a pastor who'll preach to us, <laughs> except for the times when he's incapacitated? Uh, do Are we grateful for what God has given us? I think this uh, passage is very searching in terms of uh, what God has done in uh, in casting them down from heaven. So gonna, I'll make a couple more comments, but let me pause there and, and see uh, if you have any thoughts on uh, this section verses 1 through 10 in particular. Jeff? Is footstool, is it usually exalted in the Bible? You just said a footstool. I tend to think about as being a
1: lowly piece of money. Right,
0: just right, on. yeah. And I guess the image is... It's I think so it's it's the idea that you don't have your body in one room and your feet in another right right so so they' are in God's presence, even if only as footstool. they're only creatures, but even if only as as footstool yeah, yeah, um, and I Yeah, so um, I don't know the general question about uh, the use of footstools in the Bible. But that, you know, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and their, their evasive, you know, okay, we're not going to swear by the Lord, but we'll swear by the gold of the temple and so forth. The one thing he mentions is, well, you say you can swear by uh, Jerusalem, but it's his footstool. So he's saying that's something which is God's own that you shouldn't swear by. So that that's one example of its use in clearly highlighting its significance. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, that like I said, I I don't exalt my footstools, right? <laughs> That's where I put my feet, and they're dirty or smelly or whatever, so yeah. Mark, did you have a comment? You <laughs> mentioned yeah it's a serious, what we do today is serious it's serious business that's right yeah and this uh I think this chapter brings that out in a very stark way yeah. yeah it's a glorious business I mean it's a wonderful thing it's it's communion with God, but um to think that you can then divorce it from the way you live or how you treat other people or whatever is the it's a serious danger. Let me make a a couple of other comments, uh, then we'll move on to the next section. Uh, One, I actually sort of meant to make this at the beginning, but skipped over it. Um, There's a question whenever we talk about the the sovereignty of God, and especially in terms of uh, what God is doing in this chapter. um, How is that related to the actions of those who actually implemented these things? I mean... God did all these things, but he did them through the Babylonians. And the chapter itself acknowledges that it's the Babylonians doing these things. Look at chapter two, verse 17. He has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. That's just one example of what we saw uh, in the earlier in the first chapter and uh, which we'll see elsewhere. So even though the emphasis here is on God doing these things, he he uses the enemy Okay? And he uses wicked people. Okay, right. This is uh, I guess to go back to the study of Habakkuk, right? This is Habakkuk's great like <laughs> how can you do this? Uh how can this happen? And yet uh the the Bible never brings those two into uh contradiction with each other. God is righteous, God accomplishes his righteous judgments, and God uses uh wicked people to do so. Um Jeremiah in uh, chapters 50 and 51 has a long statement about the judgment that's coming on Babylon, okay? That's just not the topic of lamentations, but it's there. And uh, another, I think, more memorable, shorter uh, statement is in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. This is speaking about Assyria. God says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. They're the rod of his anger. That is, he uses them to judge his people, but then he says, woe to them, because their intentions are evil intentions, and he will judge them for doing it. And I'm not saying that's an easy thing. Actually, it is a very hard thing for us to live in the world and see God's sovereign hand when we see evil people acting. And, uh, and yet, God has his own time, God has his own purpose, and, uh, that, uh, that is implicit in what's going on here. I just, I wanted to give that background. Uh, that's for one thing. And then, uh, secondly, this uh, idea of uh, cast down from heaven, which uh, was the um, the title for this section. I-, I don't have time to go through this. It's an interesting biblical motif. So uh, Satan is cast down from heaven. I put up a couple of references there. There are references in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, where historically some in the church have seen this as the fall of, uh, of uh, Satan. Um, but with the reference to Eden, you can also think of the fall of mankind. Mankind, as it were, was in the presence of God in Eden, and yet fell from it. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting theme to explore. Uh, it's also a remarkable thing that Jesus came down from heaven. He voluntarily came down from heaven to uh, suffer for us and to take our place. And so uh, he lifts us back into his presence. So if you want something further to explore, I put up some references there in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Luke, but it's uh, it's worth uh, thinking about. Okay, let's go to the uh, next section, verses 11 through 19. So tears, comfort and exhortation. And they actually go together, even though it may not look like they do. so let me first say that if you read, for example, verse 11, my eyes fail with tears, my heart is troubled. That language and actually much of the language in this uh, part of the chapter is very close to the language in the book of Jeremiah. It's uh, Part of it is word for word phrases that he uses uh, not only about uh, his weeping for his people, but even the, the things that they would suffer. So it's just as a general uh, connection with uh, Jeremiah's ministry. So verses in eleven and twelve are an emotional expression, and that would put it very mildly. It's an emotional expression which is also very physical. My bile is poured on the ground. Okay, so in the the Jewish mindset, different parts of the body were especially associated with uh, strong emotions, uh, and it's actually it's kind of complicated to explain that. I'm not sure that we really want to think about it too much, but uh, the The way Jeremiah cries and laments over the people. This is this is the narrator sort of stepping out of the narrator role, sort of like the he's not the objective observer. He says this is tearing me up to see this happen to my people. In particular he mentions here the lack of food and the children and the infants dying because of the lack of food. I warned you at the beginning in my invitation to the Book of Lamentations that there's some pretty awful things in the book. Uh, at the end of the chapter is cannibalism, but this is bad enough, we might say, to see the children who are dying. And this, this I think is, uh, again, it's not, this isn't a, maybe an explanation, but a perspective. They're really dying because of the sins of their fathers. I mean, this, they're in the situation they're in because they were disobedient to God. And that not only in, you know, the general terms, but the Babylonians had a policy that if you surrendered, they wouldn't kill your women and children, right? You would have food to eat. And that's what Jeremiah again and again warned them to do. But you can see a a direct connection between this disobedience of the people and the suffering of the children. And yet that doesn't say, okay, you know, Jeremiah doesn't say, well, I'm not going to cry for them because it's all their parents' fault. It's it's all the more uh, reason for Jeremiah to pour out his uh, tears for them. And then, uh, strikingly, in verses 13 through 7, he turns to address Lady Zion. Okay? Before, again, this, this is not what you expect the narrator to do, but now he's going to speak directly to the people. And he asks, in light of his emotional state, how can he help them? How can I console you? How can I comfort you? And, you know, there are various things that we might try when we're trying to comfort people. You know, we might try to compare their suffering to someone else's suffering, which is a really bad idea. And he says that's a really bad idea. He says, To what shall I liken you? Your ruin is spread wide as the sea. He doesn't try to downplay their suffering as if it's not that big a deal. He says, in effect, there are no words that I can give you that would make what you're going through uh, any easier as far as what's in myself. He asks, in fact, verse, at the end of verse 13, who can heal you? Now He's leading them to an exhortation to prayer. Who can heal you? Only the Lord can heal you. That is, only the one whose hand is against you can heal you. And that's the next uh, three verses say, well, don't look to man. Okay, so verse 14, I already mentioned, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. Don't look for your prophets to help you. They're not going to be any good for you. Verse 15, these are the mocking passers-by. Remember that verse in chapter 1, the one that handle, handles Messiah, you know, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by here? The people are passing by, but they're they're mocking. But they're not any help to them. And I want to come back to verse 15 in a second, but then verse 16, certainly your enemies aren't going to help you either, right? Your enemies are just triumphing over the day. This is what they had wanted to see, and they're rejoicing over it. So Jeremiah says, don't look for comfort or help from man. And he mentions uh, these three in particular. Instead, uh, what he says is that they should call out to the Lord And that starts really in verse 17, a verse I've already mentioned, a statement that this is God's work. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word. Okay. now, if you were Zion, that might not sound very comforting. Right. He said he was going to do this and he did it. But that's, as I said, leading them to think this is a God who keeps his word. This is a God who will surely not forget his promises to us. And so in, then in verses, uh, 18 and, uh, 19, he calls them to prayer. He calls them to prayer with seven, seven, uh, imperatives. Let tears, I guess it's, no. let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no release. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. That means, stay up all night praying, or at least every three hours get up and pray, or, uh, three or four hours. The the 12 hours were divided into watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. He sees their only hope in the one who has already struck them down. And this is, okay, this is not a natural reaction, right? You don't turn to the one who has hand is against you this way. But this is what uh, Lamentations teaches us. This is what the Psalms of Lament teach us also. In the darkest hour, the best way to find relief is to turn to the one whose hand is on you. And that turning to the to him is an expression of faith. Let me just make, uh, before I... Uh, Go on to uh, ask for questions. So let me make just one comment on uh, verse fifteen. Uh, there are a couple of interesting things about verse fifteen. One is uh, the quotes from the psalms that you may recognize at the end. The mockers say, "Is this the city that was called that is called the perfection of beauty? that's psalm fifty verse two the joy of the whole earth psalm forty eight verse two that may sound familiar from singing psalm forty eight the joy of the whole earth they're saying you really sang this about yourself, and now look, you're a ruin. So the mockers know as, or their own Psalms and their own uh, expressions. In fact, if you go on in Psalm 48, you're supposed to go around and look at the ramparts and count the towers. Okay. Well, that's rubbing it in, right? Those are all now in the dust. Those are all cast down to the ground. So it's a, uh, I guess that it's bad to have a literate mocker, someone who actually knows, uh, what you're, uh, what you sing, and what you, what God has said about your nation. But uh, maybe more significantly is uh, verse 15. Uh, the language of verse 15 is taken up in the crucifixion narrative, in uh, especially Matthew 27 verse 39. So remember, there are people who are passing by, they're, uh, they're mocking, they're shaking their heads. And interestingly, the next verse, I only put verse uh, 39 up there, but the the next verse, uh, verse 40, they say, oh, you're the one who said you could destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. So there's, again, the the sort of temple motif uh, built into the mocking. So Matthew, in writing the gospel, wants us to look back and think of Jesus as the one who suffers uh, as his people suffered, who suffered mocking, but Right? In his crucifixion, he was going to be restoring the temple, right? And the resurrection. So, though they were actually destroying the temple, which was his body, uh, there's hope even there in the use in Matthew that, uh, here is the great one, the one who suffers for us, the one who even suffers our shame and mocking, and yet he will restore this city to the perfection of beauty and the joy of the whole earth in building a, a church in his name. It's, uh, that verse uh, in Matthew is really interesting in the context. There's also a reference to Psalm 22, but I, I think the connection with uh, Lamentations is is helpful in understanding how the New Testament writers saw Christ's suffering as connected with uh, what we read in Lamentations. Okay. So, uh, any comments on tears, comfort, and exhortation, uh, Dave? They didn't see the deception. Yeah, no, I'm right. Those yeah. oh, guys, come on, really? Right. How could you not see this? But when, you, when you're when faced with a literate mocker who's coming after you, uh, it's not always easy to see uh, what is the truth. You've got competing prophets telling you things. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a gift to have someone tell you the truth. And when you don't Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it it connects with the first part where, you know, it's easy for us to look at this and say they had Jeremiah's warnings and they didn't listen. But when you're in the middle of it, there's some things you'd like to hear. And once you bought into them, there are lots of things you just can't hear anymore. You can't see. Um, Yeah, that's I mean, that's Jeremiah weeps for them for a reason. It's not he says it's all your fault. It's a terrible thing to see, and it's a it's a warning to us also. Thank you. So I, I just want to make before we turn to the next section a comment. You know, how are we to comfort people who are suffering? Well, I wouldn't say you know Jeremiah is exactly a model in the sense that he doesn't you know he doesn't directly address their comforting. All he tells them about is everything they've gone through. But but the ultimate referral to God as the one whose who's able to comfort them, I think is the most uh, crucial part of this. And thinking of Christ who himself suffered these things and who knows our sorrows is a tremendous comfort as well. Okay, so let's uh, in the last uh, part of the time we have turn to uh, verses 20 through 22. I didn't, I didn't read uh, all the way to the end of the chapter uh, Lady Zion responds to uh, the narrator's exhortation. She turns to God in prayer. See, O Lord, and consider. So the prayer is uh, doesn't contain the repentance and the confession that we saw in chapter one. It's a different sort of prayer. But notice the connection with uh, their relationship at in the second line of verse 20. To whom have you done this? So that could be read as a statement of special privilege. Uh, but instead, I think it's an uh, it's reminding God that they are his covenant people. To whom have you done this? These are the people who are called by your name. So not to say that they're innocent of uh, this or not uh, deserving of suffering, but to, as it were, remind God that they are his people. And to pray that he would do as he had promised in in the covenant and restore them. So there's a, you might say the the hope and the encouragement in the psalm. They they consider their relationship with God and that God is faithful. That's their only he is their only hope and that covenant relationship is what they cling to. Uh, the rest of this uh, the last part of this refers as I said to cannibalism. To whom have you done this? And then it turns, should the women eat their offspring? Uh, uh, This is not a pleasant subject. This was, again, part of the covenant curses that were proclaimed. This uh, happened at another time, at least one other time, in the history of the nation. Uh, It's a terrible thing that has come on God's people. And uh, this cry to God doesn't say, as it were, everything's fine. It lays out before God the completeness of their suffering and yet uh, ultimately claiming that relationship they have with God. I don't know if it's uh, good that I didn't have much time to talk about cannibalism. We don't really want to talk about it too much. I did warn you, the invitation to the book, that there's some pretty uh, dark things in here. Any thoughts or comments on uh, the prayer or the chapter as a whole? Uh, Dan. You did did say a lot about, you made a brief reference to Hebrews, thinking about the emotions and parts of the body. There's a lot more to talk about. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, My mind's kind of blown here. I need to investigate this more. I'm I'm, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised. So the things that I'm working on a lot right now, Neuroscience and some of these other schools of thought, thinking about emotion and the mind and so on—it's all over the place. This is this is not. Yeah. It's no wonder to find this in the Bible, but you look at the limbic system versus the prefrontal cortex, and a bunch of these other people talk about anxieties and emotions and how deeply intertwined these are with the physical body. Yeah. So, which I think sometimes we are. I mean, this is a deep criticism, but I think, especially in reform circles, we're very, very intellectually driven. We we think a lot about these things, and and that's not wrong. That's good. But there it is right in the middle of Lamentations. uh, Oh, no, this is deeply intertwined with your physical body, and it's not just some future, like like an analogy we're making. It's much deeper than that. Jeremiah is physically sick. I mean, whatever, however you unpack the Hebrew, like, it's awful. He is, uh, and it's because of what he sees for God's people suffering. He knows why they're suffering. He told them that this is what happened, but it makes him physically sick to see this. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, it is, I mean, it's remarkable. If you think about what they did to Jeremiah, right, that he should respond in this way is also a remarkable thing, um, right, that the things they did to him, not only did they not want to hear him, but they put him in a dungeon with no food, just left him to die. And yet this guy is so, so identifies himself with the people like, like Jesus uh, does that he can't function physically. He's just laid out because of what happened here. Yeah, I'm glad you highlighted that. Um, and I can give you some references if you want on how the Hebrews thought of the anatomy. But uh, yeah. Thank you. That's a good comment.